The purpose of today's discussion is to talk about uh, two things. One is central sensitization or central pain. A lot of people call it a multiple different things, so whatever you, whatever you call it, uh, that's, that's totally fine. And the second thing is to talk about ketamine as, as a molecule, and then maybe discuss also uh, where ketamine infusions uh, may be appropriate. Uh, just to give you a little background, uh, central sensitization, central pain has been a topic of research that I've done for many years. Uh, we had some uh, uh, groundbreaking articles that uh, sort of uh, described the relationship between the stellate ganglion and central pain and showed the entire mechanism. Uh, and since then, it's, uh, you know, we've, I've always tried to evolve that into, okay, what are the next sort of places for, for clinical application? Uh, ketamine infusions, I've, I started a program up uh, in the Chicago area a few years back, and uh, we've performed uh, more than 1,000 infusions successfully, uh, and uh, our outcomes have been really, really quite good. Uh, we hope to get that stuff published uh, maybe sometime next year. Um, so, so we'll talk about this, uh, these two topics. I have nothing to disclose. I kind of joke around. Nobody is paying me for this, unfortunately. So you have my tip jars in the back. I'm happy to, to, to put your extra gambling profits uh, in, in there. Learning objectives. Uh, discuss the landscape of pain management. So I always do this in every lecture. I think it's very important that we discuss how broad pain management is as a field, uh, just so we're all on the same page. Discuss the various types of pain. So some simple, basic knowledge type of stuff. Um, many of you already know this, but, uh, but I, I just want to make sure we're all, again, uh, talking the same language. Discuss central sensitization. Discuss ketamine and the mechanisms of action. Uh, then discuss ketamine infusions briefly. This is not a how-to lecture. This is more of a let's uh, learn about these, uh, the science behind uh, everything. And then we'll also briefly discuss barriers to treatment. Okay. So what's the definition of pain? Well, the International Society uh, Association for the Study of Pain, IASP, has defined pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential damage or described in such terms. So to put that in English, anything that sucks, okay, <laughs> that's pain. So it could be, you know, you, know you, you, you could lose all your money at the gambling tables downstairs, that's pain. You know, you could get rejected by, you know, someone that you see that tickles your fancy downstairs, that's pain. Someone could smack you when you're drunk, that's pain. Um, you know, you can, you can uh, be depressed, that's pain. I mean, all these things are pain, so things that really bother us are pain. Now, why is that? Why is that? That's more than just, you know, a definition. It's, it's because of what we see centrally occurring, and we see relationships between what occurs centrally in, in all of these different things. Now, other definitions of pain, um, you know, I looked at another uh, sort of uh, landmark um, website that describes pain. Uh, this is called the Underground Dictionary. They describe pain as a French bread. You know, pain, P-A-I-N, is French bread. And uh, painful. Also see reality TV. Survivor is painful to watch. So those are the other two definitions. Um, the last one actually is probably a real definition because it is kind of you know, mentally painful to watch Survivor. I think if you did a functional MRI while watching Survivor, you'd probably see the same effects as depression or anxiety. Um, all right, on to more serious stuff. So here's some other basic definitions uh, that, again, I just want to be on the same page. If you already know this, uh, great. If you don't, I'm going to go through this a little fast, but again, the slides are downloadable. Uh, allodynia, painful stimulus that normally doesn't provide a painful stimulus. So, you know, for example, wind blowing on your arm, if you have CRPS or RSD, that could be a painful thing. 
Normally, it shouldn't be painful. Dysesthesia, an unpleasant abnormal sensation, whether spontaneous or evoked. Hyperalgesia, increased pain from a stimulus that um, would normally provoke pain. So, for example, you know, if I kind of just maybe pinched you a little, but you said that was the worst thing in the world, that's hyperalgesia. Hyperesthesia, increased sensitivity of stimulation, uh, including the special senses. We've actually seen this where, um, where we have patients who will come in with, with just you know, uh, hypersensitivity to smell, hypersensitivity to the GI tract, you know, so things that you wouldn't normally associate with, uh, with pain. Hyperpathia, painful uh, syndrome characterized by an abnormally painful reaction to a stimulus, especially a repetitive stimulus. Neuralgia, pain in the distribution of a nerve or nerves. Neuritis, inflammation of a nerve. Neuropathic pain, pain that's caused by a lesion uh, or disease of the somatosensory nervous system. Central neuropathic pain, pain caused by a lesion or a disease of the central somatosensory nervous system. Peripheral neuropathic pain, pain caused by a lesion or disease in the peripheral somatosensory nervous system. Neuropathy, a disturbance of function or pathologic change in a nerve or in multiple nerves. Nociceptive pain is pain that arises from actual or threatened damage to non-neuronal tissue. Sensitization, as a broad term, is increased responsiveness of nociceptive neurons to a normal input and or recruitment of responses to normally sub-threshold inputs. Central sensitization now specifically refers to an increased responsiveness to nociceptive neurons to their normal input centrally. And then peripheral sensitization is the same thing, but peripherally. So let's look at some causes of pain, the most common causes of pain, okay? Low back and arthritis pain. That, that accounts for half or more than half of all musculoskeletal diagnoses. Now, we all know that low back pain specifically is the most common type of reported pain, and one of the most uh, common visits for uh, uh, reasons for visiting a, a healthcare provider is the leading cause of disability for patients under the age of 45. So kind of a big deal. I mean, if we're talking just pure dollars and cents, you know, if we can really tackle that responsibly, we can actually maybe help the economy. Okay, 26 million Americans, uh, adults experience frequent back pain. 15% of those uh, experience back pain that lasts for more than two weeks. Arthritis and chronic joint problems affect 70 million individuals. About 18 million of those are osteoarthritis, and about 2 million of those are rheumatoid arthritis. So types of pain, we have four types of pain. Okay, four types of pain. This is important. A lot of people think that there's only two types of pain. There's actually four types of pain. And those two types, or those four types, are nociceptive pain, number one. Okay, we talked about the definition briefly. Some examples of that would be things like burns and cuts. Now, now just to sort of put a little footnote there, there are some individuals who feel that that's more nociceptive pain because when you cut something or when you burn, um, obviously you're getting nerve, uh, nerves that are getting affected and damaged in the process. Um, but we won't get into that debate today. That's not the purpose of today. Neuropathic pain is neuronal damage, so things like herpes zoster or diabetic peripheral neuropathy. You have inflammatory pain. We all know what that is, inflammation. Okay, that can include anything from, from uh, arthritis to, uh, to even neuritis. Okay? That's inflammatory as well. It's also neuropathic. So just because you have different types of pain doesn't mean we, we don't have crossover of those different types. And then finally, central amplification or central sensitization or central pain or whatever you want to call it. And that can include things like fibromyalgia. That can also include things like CRPS or RSD which also can be categorized under neuropathic pain. Like I said, we can have crossover. We can have multiple different types of pain for the same condition. 
So we have also categories of pain. We've split into three categories, acute pain, chronic pain, and palliative pain. Acute pain typically is short-term pain. A lot of people will say that's three months or less. Chronic pain, people will say, well, that's three months or more. And then palliative are, is for patients who are suffering from severe pain in, uh, in a progressive disease or, or dying from a pro progressive disease. Who provides these services? Um, if you've listened to any of my lectures before, you've already seen this slide. And you've already seen me uh, list that slide in about 10 seconds or less. Um, I, I won't do that now. But we have literally every specialty in medicine does pain management, whether they know it or not, or whether they like it or not, right? We've seen that too. Um, we have pa patients come to us because they're, pain. they're in pain, some type of pain, and we have to try to manage those. So physicians manage it, uh, uh, pharmacists manage it, healthcare providers manage it, physician assistants, nurse practitioners manage it. There's a lot of people within the system that uh, deal with pain. Why is that important? Because we need to understand, we need to look at pain from the big picture, and we need to understand the different types of pain uh, that we've described. This is especially important when it comes to central pain, because unfortunately there's a lot of people who don't believe that central pain exists, and, and, and we'll show you enough data that, that I, I doubt it'll be an arguable event by the end of this. But this is why we need the big picture, because what happens, and this is a really funny slide, it, it came from a, um, an article back in 2006. But you see to the right, the otolaryngologist will look at the patient and they say, oh, well, that must be TMJ. And the neurologist will see a chronic headache. The rheumatologist will say, well, it must be fibromyalgia. You know? uh, and the, non the cardiologist will say, well, gee, it's non-cardiac pain. That's all I can tell you. The gynecologist will say, well, it must be PMSing. And the gastroenterologist will say, oh, it must have IBS. And finally, the psychiatrist will say, well, gee, yeah, you know, does the pain suck? Yeah, it sucks. Oh, then you have depression. Well, so, and this is the problem, right? So all these people are trying to do their level best. I hope they're trying to do their level best. Uh, most of them are trying to do their level best. But, but, the, but you know, we, we kind of trained to have that, that, that tunnel vision, and quite frankly, especially within the current healthcare system, when we have sort of three minutes to see a patient, you really don't have time to see the big picture. But it is important to see a big picture. So when we look at interventional pain specialists, which is, which is what I am, you know, the, the thought is that, um, you know, at least the, the thought from, from some of society is that, you know, we're, we're, the, we're, the, we're usually anesthesiologists, or we usually perform injection therapy, you know, um, a, a good interventional pain specialist should be able to do over 100 different types of minimally invasive uh, procedures in different locations. Uh, but what, what sets them apart, first and foremost, is that they're diagnosticians, okay? So, so, so if you ever, uh, if you are a pain specialist, or if you, if you refer to an interventional pain specialist, make sure that person is a diagnostician first. The goal is to find out where's that pain coming from and not just to shove needles in people. Um, it should have a multidisciplinary approach and, uh, and a good fund of knowledge on, on uh, you know, uh, multiple different types of treatment. And also a good fund of knowledge, again, this is important, and this, again, ties into what we're talking about today, a good fund of knowledge on central pain, because if, if you don't, then you may be missing a big, big picture here. So what's the reality? The reality is that most of us who uh, practice pain management, a lot of people really you know, do a great job, but how many have been trained in all the different aspects of pain? And it's, and it's not the majority, and, uh, and that might be one of the reasons we have variability. It may be actually one of the reasons why we have this, quote, opiate epidemic, okay? because, because the only tool that some, some practitioners know is opiates. Uh, and while they may be effective in some patients, we don't want to over-opiatize uh, patients. You know, so look into you know, what kind of training and, and, and whatnot uh, when we're referring patients out. So there's a lot of different interventional options. You have epidurals, transferaminals, medial branch blocks, radio frequencies, joint injections, spinal cord stimulators, uh, pumps, uh, just decompression. And 
you know, again, those are good for one thing, peripheral pain. Okay, so that's important. Those are, those are techniques that are used to diagnose and maybe treat peripheral pain, but not necessarily central pain. Those referrals should be made when we, when we think that the patient is a non-surgical patient. So if the patient can't move their extremities, they've lost feeling, they've lost bowel or bladder control, okay, that's someone that needs to go to the surgeon you know, quite, quite immediately. But if it's a painful condition, even if it's a, ser a seriously painful condition, it should be diagnosed first and worked up first. So what is central sensitization? Uh, you know, we gave the definition a little earlier, but uh, we'll give it again. Again, increased responsiveness of nociceptive neurons to normal input, normally subthreshold inputs. Uh, this is usually seen or usually called wind-up phenomenon. Have any of you heard of the wind-up phenomenon? The wind-up phenomenon was described many years ago as, uh, you know, really sort of, to put it simply, the central nervous system is stuck in the on position. Some people describe it, the brain's going 100 miles an hour, but the body's not. It stays in an upregulated state where we have this constant firing of excitatory neurons, but we have nothing inhibiting it. Um, that, you know, again, that can cause central or even peripheral pain. So th this can occur centrally, it can occur peripherally. If you've ever seen a patient, sometimes they'll say, you know, it's just it's my, my, you know, my, my hand or my whatever is very tender. By just someone saying that, we don't know if that's peripheral or if it's central. We have to tease those out. It could be both. It could be organic or inorganic. What does that mean? An organic thing is, you know, again, tissue damage, which we talked about before. Inorganic is typically not tissue damage. Now, that does get, again, muddy. There's a little footnote, right, because there's no absolutes here. You, you know, you can have that inorganic, which could be, again, sensitization. Uh, it could be central in origin. Even that central in origin, which we'll see with some of these slides, can cause gray matter changes. You can actually see problems, organic problems in the brain when these, quote, inorganic things aren't treated correctly. But we do try to, you know, try to separate those organic and inorganic. So this idea of central sensitization or central pain was, has really been around for many, many years. In fact, about 500 years. Descartes first sort of described this, uh, this notion that, you know, when someone gets hurt, you know, that, that pain goes to the brain. It's not just, it doesn't just live in the periphery. And then something happens in the brain. So he had discussed this about 500 years ago. And now we have data to help support that. So we look at brain imaging uh, uh, data, which you'll see here in the, in the very top of the cortical reorganization. You see that you know, after a stimulus takes place, the system undergoes some type of reorganization to that injury, also known as memories. Okay, whether it's an actual or potential injury, your brain forms memories. This is what normally happens. And this is natural. Why, why would your brain form a memory? Because your brain's going to say, hey, buddy, don't do that again. That's stupid. You need to have your brain to form those experiences and those memories so you don't get into that problem in the future. But what can happen is you can have this sort of central sensitization process that occurs where you get this hyperexcitatory um, response, and then the brain doesn't stop telling you to stop, even though you stopped a while ago. Um, what we've seen with central sensitization quite uh, often is we see the NMDA receptor or the N-methyl D-aspartic acid uh, glutamate receptors stuck in the on position. Uh, that seems to be a pretty common theme. There's a lot of different uh, things that occur when central sensitization occurs, but that seems to be um, pretty you know, invariable in those situations. What we also see is that we see peripheral inflammation, um, after, you know, we see central sensation after peripheral inflammation, nerve injuries that again fire up to centrally to the brain and cause the brain to respond in a sort of pathologic way. 
Like I said just a few minutes ago, many features of central sensitization uh, represent or are the same as what we see when we form memories. So when we do these imaging studies on the brain, like functional MRI studies, we start seeing that the parts of the brain that uh, become activated after memory formation and this sort of central pain are very similar to each other. So it not only increases when we have these injuries, but what we also see, besides the functional MRIs, that we see neurotransmitter activity increase. And it's been suggested that, that this process is, is the role for why we see postoperative pain that's not controlled. Okay, so why it's super important to have good perioperative pain programs in hospitals. And, you know, unfortunately, the surgeon's worried about just doing their surgery correctly. They're really not worried about chronic pain forming. I'm sorry to say, but that's not their goal. The anesthesiologist that's in there, they're also not really worried about how the patient's going to do two years from now. They're worried about if the patient's going to survive and throw up, you know, during the um, procedure. No one's really looking at this perioperative sort of picture, but it needs to be looked at. There are some hospital systems that have implemented very strong perioperative programs, um, and there are some hospitals that have incorporated programs that absolutely require the use of neuropathic pain medications, the gabapentinoids perioperatively, um, and depending on the surgery, NSAIDs perioperatively, and ketamine intraoperatively to try to reduce the formation of, of, of uh, peripheral and central sensitization. So what causes this? We talked about the NMDA receptors, but there also can be altered gene expression in the dorsal um, horn. Okay, so altered gene expression. So you see me see uh, uh, genes firing that shouldn't be firing or genes activated that shouldn't be activated. Decreased inhibition centrally and peripherally. Microglial activation in the central nervous system. And thalamic and somatic uh, sensory cortex changes, which, which we'll see with some functional MRI studies, which we have coming up. Some types of central sensitization. We've talked about CRPS, RSD, okay, complex regional pain syndrome. Uh, you guys have all heard of that, I'm sure. That seems to be our prototypical or the worst case scenario of central pain. But we have a lot of other ones. We have anxiety. We have chronic pain in general. Chronic pain in general that's not well treated can cause that, that, that hyperalgesia centrally. CRPS, RSD, depression, okay, fibromyalgia, um, some types, some types of headaches opiate-induced hyperalgesia, phantom limb pain, and PTSD. These are all examples of central pain or central sensitization. Now, again, it doesn't mean that everyone who has this has 100% central pain or anything like that, okay? It just means that patients who have this will probably have some variability, okay? Anywhere from 1% to 100%, but there'll be some element of it, especially if you, if you could put all these people in functional MRI um, uh, 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 machines, you would see some brain changes. So what's the neurophysiology of central sensitization? So we see here on the left, we see uh, neuro, nociceptive transmission. I guess what normally happens. A stimulus will occur, neurotransmitters get released, and, um, and usually, you know, that, that it'll get released and, you know, it will stop getting released, you know, normal, normal sort of situation. But in an acute phase of central sensitization, what you'll see is this wind-up, okay? The, the, the receptors never get that signal to stop releasing. And then you start seeing, um, uh, as you can see in uh, slide number B, a lot of other receptors, NMDA, uh, AMPA, uh, different receptors started getting activated. In the, in the late phase, those receptors are already activated, and now you have this cascade occurring, this inflammatory cascade that occurs. And then in the final phase, you actually see something called disinhibition. Okay? The, the neurons, um, um, they, they're not even allowed to inhibit themselves anymore. Okay? And this is where, we, where, where it becomes that chronic uh, phase. 
we see with functional MRI data, I promise you I'll show you some imaging, and there's a lot more to come, uh, of, of when uh, people have done studies to look at um, what do people, uh, what kind of brain activity do people have with no pain? What kind of brain activity do people have with fibromyalgia? What kind of brain activity do people have with lower back pain? What kind of brain activity do people have with something like pudendal neuralgia or pelvic pain? Okay? And you know what's interesting? Um, and they've even done depression, OCD, you know, all of those things. And what's interesting is that in many situations, those diseases are actually fingerprints when it comes to functional MRI. We see trends of certain parts of the brain that are more active than other parts, and certain parts that are less active than other parts in these disease conditions. And when we overlap them with, with, with pain, we see what we see in, uh, at the very bottom here where they saw the overlap between the red and the blue maps at 72%. And the red and the blue maps were looking at you know, pain in general and then pain in a very specific uh, sort of state. We see central sensitization uh, uh, functional MRIs that are done with lower back pain. Again, um, activity in very specific areas, osteoarthritis, post-effect neuralgia, pe pelvic pain. Um, very classic sort of examples. Here we have functional MRI data looking at CRPS. Okay, which, which, again, we've used as a model for central sensitization. So on the left, we see a healthy patient. You can see a lot more activity on the left side of the picture okay, of that healthy subject. And then if you look at the, the CRPS patient, that, that activity that's normal is gone. But then you look at the right side of the brain in the CRPS patient, you see an actual increase in activity. So you see, you see increased activity, right? Increased excitatory activity and disinhibition the lack of inhibition in certain other areas, or excessive inhibition in certain areas. And when, we, and when, the, when you trail this forward over time, um, which you'll see here as you go, you know, time is on the um, bottom axis. As you go farther in time, again, the x-axis, you actually see a greater global gray matter change in the brain. That's where I was talking about this. It's considered inorganic. There was no like, sort of you know, broken bone or anything like that. But, but actually, we do see organic damage in the brain if this goes untreated. Okay, so, so, you know, again, this is not mythological. Okay, this is not hypothetical. This is real. This occurs. You can accept it or not. Uh, if you don't, you're wrong. <laughs> but, but this occurs. I mean, you know, you know that, that's the problem. That's the big challenge that's occurred in pain is people are like, oh, pff, it's all in your head. Oh, you know, just think positive thoughts, you know, dream of dandelions or whatever. Um, and, 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 and the reason is because, you know, well, we can't quantify it. Now you say it's a 10 BS. You look like you're a 1, right? What, the tool which we don't have sitting in our office is functional MRIs. That's the tool we don't have. Now, if we did, if we did, this is what we would end up seeing. Now, now, if your functional MRI came back perfectly normal, then maybe you have a case. Maybe then you could say, you know what, I really don't believe you. But, in, but, but almost invariably, you're not going to if the patients really have that disease. Why? Because your brain is nothing more than an electrical circuit. If your brain's short-circuiting and you're manifesting those short circuits, then your brain's short-circuiting. It's, it's very simple. If the light bulb isn't on, the electrical signal's not working. It's very simple. And this is the same thing with the brain. So, so we have you know, very, very solid, objective evidence to prove that central sensitization occurs. Um, about eight years ago, we were also uh, the first to prove um, that things like CRPS are central in origin. Okay? We actually uh, were on the cover of Lancet Oncology with this uh, data right here, where we did stellate ganglion blocks to reverse hot flashes in uh, breast cancer patients. 
And the thought was that uh, hot flashes, which is a sympathetically mediated process, um, could be changed with a stellar ganglion block. Now, now, most people think that you do stellar ganglion blocks, which is a little block in the neck of the stellar ganglion, which is part of the cervical sympathetic chain. Most people think you do that because you have extremity problems. And they look, you know, they think of it like it's a nerve block, and it's not. And that's where the big falsity has been. That's where, that's where some of the errors have been in judgment of, of, of the, the central component of these problems. So how in the world is it that I put a needle here and it helps something up here? So other, you know, many other people before us, uh, much smarter people, um, you know, showed us uh, the insular cortex and showed us data about the insular cortex, as well as the hypothalamus, as well as the amygdala, and the role it plays with CRPS, and the role it plays with thermal regulation, and the role it plays with hot flashes. So we actually saw an incredibly statistically significant relationship between when we did stellar ganglions correctly with a change in hot flash intensity and frequency and duration. What does this tell us? Well, we went beyond that to show the link between stellar ganglion blocks and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Obviously, stellar ganglion blocks for CRPS has been done, they've been done for, I think, 70 years. So that's been shown. So what does all this linkage tell us? This tells us not that this is what's helping, but, it, but, this is, but, but all of those central pain conditions are, in fact, central. So how do we treat central sensitization? Well, there's a few different ways. You know, from a therapy standpoint, there's physical therapy, there's a mirror box therapy, which we won't get into, but it's really neat. Uh, graded motor imagery, tactile discrimination training, and sensory discrimination training. From a neuropsych feedback um, uh, uh, treatment uh, modality, you would have EEG biofeedback, you'd have cognitive behavioral therapy, relaxation th techniques, and hyp hypnotic techniques. Okay, all are, all are part of a you know, sort of bigger you know, grand scheme against uh, uh, central pain. Medications that could be used, a wide list of medications, alpha or beta adrenergic medications, anti-inflammatory, bisphosphonates, uh, Botox, calcium regulating drugs, GABA analogs, ketamine, uh, local anesthetics, opiates, SNRIs, and vasodilators. Now this is a list of all things that people use. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that any of these do or do not reverse the actual pathologic process. Some of these are just part of the management. Some of these are band-aids until you can actually reverse the pathologic process. Treatments for central sensitization interventionally, again, this is not necessarily treatment of the central process, but it's treatment potentially of the peripheral process that's feeding into the central um, um, hyperexcitatory process. Epidural blockade, uh, intravenous immunoglobulin therapy, uh, intravenous uh, regional sympathetic blockade, ketamine infusions, uh, selective sympathetic ganglion blocks, and spinal cord stimulators. So let's talk about ketamine. Has everyone heard of ketamine before? Right, most people have. Is anyone not? Is, is, is anyone here because they think ketamine is some like street drug and they just want to see what it's all about? I hope not. I really don't. Um, I, I, hope, I hope no one's here because, um, because they think this is a street drug. Okay, this is actually a molecule that was founded about 50 years ago, okay, um, 1962 by a gentleman named Calvin Stevens. First synthesized it, and then it was introduced for human testing in 1964, and it was FDA approved in 1970. Okay, there's, there's a few of us that weren't even born then. I mean, this thing's been around for a long time. And despite the fact that it's so old, you got it? Despite the fact that it's so old, the World Health Organization still considers ketamine as one of the core medicines 
as part of the uh, as part of the essential drug list. Okay, which means that to have a minimally functional healthcare system, you have to have ketamine as part of it. Isn't that interesting? Because most of us think that it's some like way out there, you know, freaky deaky compound or drug, and it's like, oh wow, you're talking about some like you're totally out of the box. No, no, no. No, I'm smack dab in the box. And if you don't have this in your box, you're the one who's a freaky deaky, you know, dude who doesn't even know what the World Health Organization advocates. Uh, and, and many of us don't, because unfortunately in America nobody even pays attention to what they say, because we're so we're so kind of centric, you know, uh, which is unfortunate. This is this is part of their minimal. Uh, list of, 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 of drugs uh, to have a proper basic healthcare system. So what is ketamine? Ketamine is a highly lipophilic molecule. Okay, about 44% of it is non-ionized at physiological pHs. It's a, usually a racemic mixture, so you have both the S and the R antimers. The onset is usually, if you put it IV, the onset could be as short as 30 seconds, IM, you know, three to four minutes. Duration IV from that one bolus up to about 15 minutes, IM, 12 to 25 minutes, so you can see it's pretty rapid. Pretty rapid on, pretty rapid off. Uh, half-life, elimination half-life, about two and a half hours. Distribution half-life, about 11 to 16 hours. So half-life is short, you know, it gets, you know, goes in the system, comes out of the system pretty, pretty quickly. Metabolism, usually hepatic metabolism, obviously that means that the, uh, there's metabolites, and the metabolite of norketamine is about 33% as potent as the parent compound, and the excretion is urine. You hear a few structures, I'm not gonna obviously have you memorize these, but just to sort of point out that there are different structures, okay, there are different antimers. And it's been um, pretty, pretty sort of widely thought that the S antimer is uh, uh, far cleaner, uh, far more effective, less side effects than the R antimer, okay? Um, the data shows about three to four times more affinity for the S antimer to, to NMDA receptors than the um, R version. Okay, and that's important because there's some studies going on right now looking at the S um, uh, antimer. Um, I believe so. That's the only one, you know, when we, when we order ketamine, it's a racemic mixture. Um, I have not heard of just the pure S antimer on the market. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that when it comes out, it's going to be a branded version. So it will be, you know, more expensive and, and um, everything. Um, and, and sort of, I don't know if you guys were here from my last lecture, uh, on counterfeit medications, but just a little 30-second little blurb on that. We buy only one brand of ketamine. We've actually bought a few different brands, and the other brands caused side effects, were not efficacious, all that stuff. So we, we only buy one brand. I won't say what it is out loud, but if you want to talk to me afterwards, I'll tell you what it is. Um, and it's the one that's been invariably, we've done over a 1,000 of these, invariably steady and stable and reliable. The other ones were not. Uh, which is probably, on a side note, probably why some of these studies show variability. Who's doing the studies? What brand are they buying? These are important variables that people don't always pay attention to. Uh, NMDA receptor, okay, is an N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor. It's a, not, it's a specific uh, inotropic glutamate receptor that mediates neuronal signaling and, and regulates gene expression. It's a pretty, pretty big molecule. I'll show you a little picture in a minute. But it really does a lot of stuff. It's a fascinating, fascinating receptor. Uh, it's present in all neurons in the CNS and specifically in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. It's highly permeable and allows flow of both sodium and calcium channels into the cell and potassium out of the cell. Uh, out of the cell. Uh, magnesium blocks NMDA uh, channels. So some, some, this is sort of interesting. Uh, people have used magnesium in, in sort of the, the, the 
treatment of central pain or neuropathic pain, and that's, that, this is why. And MDA signaling is important in anesthesia. It's involved in pain processing and involved in neuronal plasticity. So, you know, if we say, hey, we should maybe use this perioperatively, this is why. Neuronal plasticity is mediated by NMDA. And if you let NMDA receptors uh, sort of uh, become really excited and, and, you know, a little too excited, uh, it may lead to that cascade of events that causes chronic pain or chronic neuropathic pain or central pain. So it's very important for signaling, it's very important for neuroplastic function, and finally, it's important for memory function. There's actually a, a, a molecule that's out there for Alzheimer's. I won't say the name, because I was told not to. <laughs> but it works on the NMDA receptor, okay, because those patients have memory problems. So when we look at the NMDA receptor, I mean, this is just one sort of graphical illustration. But you can see that there are a lot of different uh, sub-receptors on the NMDA receptor. So there's NMDA R1, R2A, R2B, R2C, R2D, and that's just a few of the receptors. Then you have um, multiple areas of binding of different uh, molecules, multiple areas of binding of different drugs. So for example, there's actually a binding site specifically on the NMDA receptor for PCP. Okay, so P and this is why PCP and ketamine uh, do share some of the hallucinatory properties because they both bind to the NMDA receptor and, and kind of sort of in similar areas, but they're very different molecules, okay? Um, so we talked about the fact that, you know, there's, there's multiple mechanisms of actions for when we look at just the NMDA receptors. We have a lot of subtypes, and we have other ones called GLU-NU1, GLU-N2A, N2B, N2C, N2D. Uh, we also have um, um, uh, the distribution of those NMDA receptors in various um, areas of the brain. Okay, including places like, again, we said the spinal cord, but we also have uh, the limbic system, the thalamic system, cerebellum. So the, the distribution of that, of that receptor, the subtypes of that receptor, okay, all play a role in how it's going to affect your body. So it's an incredibly complex uh, receptor. It's not just a simple one-trick pony type of receptor. Ketamine has also been shown, like I said in the beginning, to alter gene expression. Okay, and we see that, remember we talked in the beginning also with central sensitization, we see gene expression being altered. So, and, and it's believed that that might be another mechanism of ketamine where it, it sort of stops that abnormal gene expression from, from occurring. And some of those uh, can express, uh, it can express at the CFOS, June B, FOS B, C June, June D, and ZIF um, uh, gene expression uh, um, uh, markers. <clears throat> Other mechanisms that have been proposed for ketamine go far beyond, again, NMDA and the subreceptors. Uh, we think that it may hit other receptors like uh, the HCN1 receptors. We think that it may hit nicotinic uh, acetylcholine ion channels, delta and mu receptors. We, we think that ketamine may make patients more um, um, sensitive to opiate medications, which is why there's a thought that, uh, and we've seen this clinically, by the way, where ketamine actually reduces the need of opiates because your receptors become less tolerant to the opiate medication, and that's probably with this opiate potentiation that ketamine has. So, so we, we, we don't believe that it potentiates it for someone who's not opiates, but someone who's on opiates, we believe it can reset some of those, uh, that, that tolerance. Uh, nitric oxide, uh, the CMG, CGMP system, the AMPA system, the MGLU-R system where you look at glutamate uh, receptors, uh, cholinergic neuromodulation, a reduction in that with ketamine, uh, increased release of aminergic neuro, 
modulators, including things like dopamine and noradrenaline. Uh, it may affect uh, neurosteroids, and it may affect certain calcium channels. So kind of interesting, right? Uh, when, when, you know, for, for the people who probably are familiar with ketamine, the thought is that it's all just, oh, this one NMDA receptor, and that's it. And, and, and as we've learned, it's, it goes so far beyond that. And, and this is why it really you know, is one of the most um, interesting molecules that, that we have at our, at our clinical disposal. In addition to that, ketamine has also been shown to enhance brain-derived neurotrophic factor, as well as uh, uh, been a mammalian target at the mTOR protein levels. And this is in, in rat models. Why is that clinically important? Because it further shows you that besides the NMDA receptors, you have multiple different neurosynaptic connections, which is what leads to our neuroplastic changes. And it's a cascade of events. If we have a molecule that can stop sort of those cascade of events, it may help us. And this is where some of these ketamine fusions have been very, you know, nothing short of, in some situations, miraculous when we look at outcomes for central sensitization because it's, so, it's, it's sort of stopping that entire neuroplastic change um, in its tracks. Okay. Um, other effects, we talked about the mu receptor function uh, and the fact that it may um, uh, lead to a, a, a desensitization of those mu receptors where, again, those, those, that tolerance starts going down. We've had patients where we've done ketamine infusions where they've been able to get off of hundreds of milligrams of morphine literally overnight, literally overnight, yeah, with no withdrawals, okay? Why is that? Is because of this, or, and, and more. If your pain is lower and your tolerance to opiates are lower, you inherently need less medication because your pain is lower. You inherently need less medication because your tolerance is lower. So... You know, a lot of people think that's kind of, you know, maybe, wow, that's a one-time you know, one thing. But when you look at the mechanism, because what we want to speak here is the language of science. When we speak the language of science and we understand the mechanism of how this is all happening, it kind of makes sense. It doesn't seem so mythical. It doesn't seem so magical anymore. It seems almost predictive. You know, like, boy, this should happen if you do it correctly. Um, other mechanisms of actions, and I'll, I'll kind of go through this quickly because I, there's no quiz at the end here about the mechanism of action. Uh, and it's a lot to take in. But, but there are other mechanisms of actions that have been described, and it, it, it sort of helps describe why it may help with anxiety, help with depression, along with lowering central pain. You know, that's the, when we describe pain, like, ow, my body's hurting uh, type of situations. But if you sort of dial it back, it all goes back to neuroplasticity. So in summary, look at mechanism of action. This little slide kind of gives us a nice little summary of all these different mechanisms of action. Decrease NMDA, decrease HCN1, decrease acetylcholine uh, and ACH, uh, decrease L-type calcium um, channels, um, neuromodulation effects. You have glutamine, noradrenaline, dopamine, cortical ACH, pontine ACH, opiates sort of, they have a mixed signal because it's not really affecting the, the, the opiates uh, from a... From a um, pain standpoint, but it's making them more sensitized. Um, MGLU-R, AMPA receptors, ND, NMDA receptor uh, 1, et cetera. All right, so the effects of ketamine. We also talked about the dorsal uh, horn and the fact that on the dorsal horn, we have gene modulation. We also have glia, uh, microglial cells that may be activated. So the way it prevents central sensitization in the uh, dorsal horn, at least you know from the studies, they think that part of it might be the nitric oxide synthase inhibition. Uh, part of it might be uh, the effect on the col col uh, catecholamines and their effect on, um, on um, uh, potentiation of synthetically mediated pain. Uh, we know that uh, with ketamine, 
We don't see the same respiratory depressive effects that we see with, say, opiate medications. In fact, if, if, if some would argue that you may see a, a greater respiratory drive with, with ketamine. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why we use it in kids, one of the reasons why we use it in trauma settings, you know, where we need some type of anesthetic, but we don't want to knock out the breathing. Okay? That's why in the ERs it's used pretty often. Uh, we use it in neurological. We see actually an increase in cerebral blood flow, so very different than a lot of the other anesthetics that we use that decrease uh, cerebral blood flow. And then we can see um, uh, sensory and, uh, you know, and uh, perception and illusion changes. Okay, this is where the hallucinations have come in. Everyone's heard of that, right? The hallucinations. This is where, you know, this is where some, you know, not so brilliant people say, hey, let's go abuse it. Let's go, you know, have some fun with it. Look, you can have fun with, with anything, you know. You know, if you try to go to the stores and buy regular old white glue, it's hard to find now on the shelves. Why? Because some brilliant kids thought, hey, let's go snort it and let's go sniff it. You know, rubber cement, it's hard to find now. Why? Because you've got dummies, you know, sort of sniffing it and snorting it. You can't even buy cough medicine now because, you know, you have dumb people doing dumb things. So just because you have those people doing those things, we shouldn't carry over that stereotype to an entire molecule. The same, could be made, the same argument could be made with opiate medications. You know, just because certain people don't, aren't responsible, we should not carry that over to people who are responsible um, so ketamine preoperatively, perioperatively, a lot of studies have been done on this. A lot of data is out there that it absolutely makes a difference in the perioperative setting. Um, now, the doses may vary. Uh, they've looked at a lot of different doses. Uh, and, and that's going to be, ultimately, it's going to be physician preference. You know, once you're in the OR, uh, you take care of that patient. And if that patient, you know, has this or that going on, you're going to make a decision on how many milligrams you're going to use or not use. So that's why you see these ranges from 10 milligrams to 270 milligrams because, uh, you know, variability occurs in, in the perioperative setting. But what they did see invariably, okay, and, and we've seen this also when we've used ketamine perioperatively, that reduce acute pain, reduce chronic pain, reduce opiate-induced hyperalgesia, reduce need for opiate medications, reduce peripheral sensitization as well as reduced progression to cent uh, uh, central sensitization, okay, peripheral and central reduced. So ketamine and PTSD. Um, we've actually done, done uh, ketamine infusions for PTSD quite often, uh, quite a lot. Uh, but there are studies that, again, have, have looked at ketamine for PTSD, and we've seen a, a, a reduction in PTSD symptoms. So what does that mean? That means the memories of the PTSD, of the, post, of the traumatic event, stay. You can't get rid of memories, but what you can get rid of is the paralyzation that happens with those memories. Okay? So for example, Let's say you had a horrible uh, divorce or a horrible mar marriage or, or whatever. Hopefully you can move on from that, okay? And, and that's kind of a traumatic event. That's what this is uh, sort of allowing you to do because, again, those neuroplastic changes that have prevented you from moving on from that um, um, sort of get reversed. Now we'll take it a step farther. We'll go to the military. Let's say you have soldiers who come back, and this happens very frequently where they, try, you know, they see a door shut, right? We've heard the door shut a few times in this lecture, and they think a bomb goes off. Why? Because that noise is reminding them of a very traumatic event, and then once they hear that, they shut down. Okay? You, won't you won't lose the memory of, the, of going to the battlefield, but what you will do is you'll take the door for what it is, which is the door. Remember, we, we described all these definitions in the beginning, and this is why we described them. That is, that's, that's a sort of, a, a, an, that's sort of allodynia there, right? or hyperalgesia there. You have a non-traumatic event, non-painful event that's causing pain. So you're trying to get rid of those things. Um, what are some of the challenges to treatment? You know, why, uh, why can we not use ketamine more widely 
in the uh, private practice setting. So let's say we're doing ketamine infusions. By the way, show of hands, how many have heard of ketamine infusions? Okay. How many have ever um, uh, delivered a, a ketamine infusion to a patient? Okay, so about five or so. Um, they can be done very wi variably. You know, you have patients who, you have uh, practitioners who do 45-minute infusions, and there are some that do, gosh, you know, weeks at a time. You know, so there's a lot of variability in, in, in the protocols. You have uh, some infusions that are done with just one protocol, like, hey, listen, I'm going to give you these many milligrams, take it or leave it. You have others that will say, well, we're going to do it based on weight. You have others that say, we're going to do it based on how you are, like we would in an OR. You know, we have no idea what you need, but we're going to base it on how you do. Um, you have some that use adjuncts. You have others that don't believe in adjuncts. Uh, you, we actually use up to eight different adjuncts, uh, and, and we think it makes a difference. And then finally, again, going back to a point I made before, what brand are they using? We have seen an incredible variability with the brand that we use. What is everyone else using? Who knows? So because, there's that, that, because we have a little bit of variability in protocols and because we still have this ridiculous challenge where we have people, you know, pain practitioners that think the central, the brain has nothing to do with pain, which is mind-boggling. That's why it is, isn't it? It is pretty mind-boggling. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we have to like show slides like this and they probably still won't believe me, but anyway, that's, a, that's another discussion. Um, this is why we have, a we have trouble getting payment for it. We have trouble getting insurance companies to cover it. And when some do, the reimbursements are so low that as an interventionalist, uh, we get paid more for a 15-minute procedure than we do for a five-hour infusion. So from a business standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. So we see these challenges. We see challenges like lack of physician education. And thank you so much again for all coming here because that means you want to learn. I really appreciate it. Um, we see stereotypes. I mean, we see stereotypes, you know. I, ca I can't tell you how many times I've talked to someone who I, I think is, has, has gone to medical school. They have an MD or DO after the name. But they come back to me and they say, ooh, that's a horse tranquilizer, isn't it? And I'm like, what, are you a veterinarian? <laughs> like, are you a physician or, you know, veterinarian? But, uh, no, no offense to veterinarians, but, you know, I mean, gosh, the veterinarian is smarter than he is, you know. He knows how it works. Um, oh, isn't that, that special case stuff? It's like, no, that's the cereal box, okay? That's, uh, <laughs> tastes good, you know. Put in some milk. <laughs> I mean, you know, just the, the absolute ignorance, right? So we have physicians practicing with stereotypes versus intelligence. I mean, you know, look at the mechanization. Talk to me in the language of science and not the language of, well, I heard some dude on the TV, you know, talk to me like that. So we have those. We have physician egos. We have physicians who refuse to believe that a molecule could potentially help that patient more than a surgery or than an injection or than some, you know, you know, 100 weeks of physical therapy or whatever the case may be. We have physician laziness. You guys are here. There's a whole bunch of people who aren't. There's a whole bunch of people who didn't even come to pain. There's a whole bunch of people who don't go to conference, a whole bunch of people who don't want to learn anymore, right? They just want to go to work, get paid, come home, and that's it. We have facility logistical issues. We do all of ours in a surgery center setting because um, I, I, I personally believe it's safer. I, I tend to be a little OCD about safety for those guys who know me. Maybe, maybe a little too much, but it is what it is. But we have logistical issues. You know, I, I don't personally believe that this should be done in some closet. You know, where you just put them in a closet and say, okay, here, I'm going to bolus you ketamine and I'm going to call it an infusion. That does occur. Um, and amazingly, some of those patients get relief. I just don't think that that's a very safe way of doing it. You know, I, I look at things as an anesthesiologist, which is what I am, where we need complete monitored setting. I look at this as monitored anesthesia care. 
And when you look at it that way, it forces you to use multiple adjuncts. It forces you to look at what dose you're using, and it forces you to treat the patient and not the disease. Um, complexity of science. If you've taken anything else home today, is that this is not just a ah, it's some random NMDA receptor antagonist. No, it's, it's much more complicated than that. And the, the neurophysiologic changes that are occurring in the brain constantly with central pain and central sensitization is, is very complex. I'll admit to you, I'm not an expert, okay? Um, I, I know at least you know, some of this stuff, but, uh, but even I'm not an expert on this. And lack of coverage, so I, I told you about the reimbursements, and anyone who's done them uh, probably can tell you, you ain't getting rich off them. Uh, you, you do much better just seeing a patient every three minutes and doing a, a, a block. And, um, and so, yeah, lack of coverage or minimal reimbursement. So those are some of the complexities. And, and I want to leave you with this one final thing, okay? Um, I include this, and I'm going to include this forever, okay? I had a patient who uh, has well-documented CRPS, okay? She's been to seven other pe uh, physicians, two other pain docs, multiple surgeons, multiple hand specialists, primary care physicians, everybody, and the physical therapist, the physical therapist, and they're all like, this is CRPS. We did, um, she's failed everything else. She's had multiple surgeries. Her, her arm is kind of disfigured now. Every ketamine infusion we've done, she's had 100% relief. I have videos of this where she cannot even, you know, she's allodynia. She can't even, you know, no one can touch her arm, nothing like that. At the end of the infusion, she's shaking my hand harder than, like, a construction worker will shake your hand. I mean, she's got some intense muscle strength there, right? So anyway, um, you know, she's a work comp patient. Obviously, they want to try to get out of paying for it, um, which is, I, I get it. I get it, even though I think it's horribly unethical. Um, so they send her to one of those uh, physician whores. And really, that's the best thing, I, that's the best way I can, I, can, I can say it. Because who is this guy? This is a guy who you pay him some money, and he'll do whatever you want. Okay? So you pay this guy some money, and he will tell you to your face that this patient doesn't have pain even though literally everyone in the medical community is saying so. So I took a little snippet of his IME out. Okay? And this guy is not just a physician who's, who's quite disgusting, but he is the head of an anesthesia program and the head of a fellowship program for pain at a, a major hospital university in the Chicagoland area. Disgusting, right? So he's training people wrong stuff. Or maybe he's not. He might be training people the right stuff. He just does the wrong stuff when you give him $3,000. What's that? Uh, he probably don't know what it is. I'll tell you why he doesn't know what it is. Look at this. If you can see the slide, he says, in the USA, there's some following, some random following, even absent FDA approval for the use of ketamine infusions. In documented CRPS criteria, meeting cases. Uh, miss, you know, so-and-so. Did not meet the diagnostic criteria for CRPS, and therefore the use of Ketamine infusions was not indicated. Okay, all right, well, don't agree with that, but, but he goes on. So even though he admits that there's CRPS and ketamine infusions, he's trying to make a ploy for how it's not FDA approved for that. But then he goes on and sort of contradicts himself, and he says, she also does not have, quote, central sensitization, purely speculative diagnosis, purely speculative. So he said, we're just speculating that there's some random thing that happens called the brain. I have one, he might not, but, you know. Nor does she have peripheral neuropathy. So this is a lady with the disfigured hand who's had multiple surgeries, but there's no possible way that she could have nerve damage, right? And, um, and she's therefore not a candidate for ketamine infusions. This is the challenge that we see. So I hope that, you know, sort of leaving here today, um, I hope you've learned something. And uh, I hope, if nothing else, 
that uh, we, we've sort of been able to demonstrate that you know, central sensitization is, is definitely a real thing. Call it whatever you want, central pain, central whatever you want. And ketamine as a, as a drug um, is a very complex drug, but is used in uh, a role that helps reduce central and peripheral sensitization, mainly central sensitization. Yep, so, um, so once neuroplastic changes have occurred, your, your brain's formed those memories. Okay, what, what, once that wiring's there, it's there. What we're trying to do is flip her back to a more normal perception. But what happens is she uses her arm, and every time she does that, she's resensitizing that arm. So it, it will come back. That's why it comes back. Not because it fails, but that's why it comes back. Now, some people will have 100% relief. We've seen some people 100% relief for months. We've seen some people 100% relief maybe for a week or two, and then it slowly comes back. It's been variable. Everyone's different. Um, you know, we had a patient uh, just about a month or so ago, um, she, horrible, horrible pain, um, young girl, can't even eat because CRPS has basically caused gastroparesis, can't even eat, okay? She had 100% relief. She was able to uh, set up a conference where there were 400 people there. I mean, as a girl, you can't even touch her arm. It's a girl who had half a Giordano's pizza afterwards. I don't know if you guys know what Giordano's is. It's like this thick pizza, okay? She had half of it. This is a girl who can't even barely drink water because it hurts her stomach so much. All right? Now, how long did it last for her? Well, gosh, I would have horrible pain if I suffered 400 people. So the pain came back. So we reinfused her, and she's doing fine. Now, it will come back. I guarantee it will come back because the neurophysiologic changes have already occurred. So it's a management tool, but there is no other tool that has given a lot of these patients up to 100% relief because there's an epidural doesn't change this, right? You see what I mean? So it's, a, it's, it's the correct molecule for the correct problem. Yeah, it is. Um, good, good question. They, they don't make recommendations like that. So they don't make clinical recommendations in, in that sense when it comes to ketamine but just a core molecule uh, for, for, um, uh, for, you know, really all uses, so anesthetic uses. So that could be in the trauma setting, could be in the OR setting. But they haven't, um, unfortunately, they haven't made it. I, I wish that would be really neat if they sort of come out and say this is um, a sort of an essential treatment for central pain. That would be really neat, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. Because they look at literally, really, they, WHO looks at um, uh, uh, more like policies, not clinical sort of, guidelines, but more policies. So they, they won't come out with those kind of things. Um, so we do not do ketamine, we're not doing ketamine boluses, we're doing true infusions, steady state infusions. Um, well, the goal, I, I believe, of, of, of the infusion, really, should be to have a steady state so you have a very steady state, and I've called it a sweet spot. Every patient will have a sweet spot where they're getting complete receptor antagonism, but not so much that they're like, you know, totally, you know, tripping out, right? So you have that sweet spot. Um, now, if you bolus, you're never going to get that sweet, you're going to get it, but you're going to go through it much, and this is actually one of the reasons why I do not believe in ketamine orally or ketamine nasally or ketamine injections or any of that stuff because it's, it, you're not getting that sweet spot. Now, they may get relief, but that's not, it's not changing the long-term 
To change the long term, you need true receptor antagonism at that very specific sweet spot over the course of a, uh, we found that three hours seems to be that sweet spot for duration. One hour doesn't help as much as three hours. Six hours did not give us any better results than three hours. We've had a lot of patients go to other facilities, do five-week infusions. Or I'm sorry, one-week infusion, five-day infusions. They came back to us. No joke, they actually found better results with ours than theirs. Why? Probably because doing five days didn't improve anything, but also because those patients were not customized. They were just, here you go, we're putting you on this rate, we'll see you in five days, number one. And number two, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if, if those facilities are as OCD about the actual brand and products that they buy. You know, because we're not doing it at the hospital, we're doing it in a surgery center. I have complete control over the infusion, whereas in the hospital, you're, you're stuck with whatever the hospital, you know, PBM is, whatever, and it's probably going to be a cheap crap. I wouldn't do. I wouldn't do that. You, 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 no, and you have no clue what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna. You're gonna see definitely a central effect. Um, you're gonna see metabolism that's variable. And uh, quite frankly, I think I think that can be dangerous because you know there are reports that ketamine, uh, you know, with a, you know a lot of duration, a lot of milligrams, you know, uh, may may affect uh, liver function. Um, I've never seen that, but those reports are out there, and I believe it. You know, if you do anything, if you do too much of anything, it's going to affect your liver, especially if it's hepatic metabolism. So here, if I, if I just do one dose of something once every two months, I think it's a heck of a lot better than giving any pill six times a day or whatever. Um, so I really don't, I don't think we're going to ever run into those hepatic issues because we're using it so infrequently. Um, and we're using it in a very steady state. So the key is to get that steady state that's perfect for that patient, but not just that steady state. You know, you have a bunch of other processes going on. If you have a little too much of this receptor, a little too little of this receptor, you may need to augment that with adjunctive medications. So it's really producing that perfect soup. And this is probably why most people don't do it, because to do that is you really need to know your patient, and it's labor-intensive, and um, you'd make a heck of a lot more if you just said, I'm just going to stick needles in you, you know? And that's, that's the reality of it. But, um, but if you get it right for that patient, uh, you know, we've seen just... We've had patients who've had 30 years of fibromyalgia, and this was true fibro. It wasn't like misdiagnosed arthritis or this. It was true fibro. And, um, and they come to us once every three months or so, and they have about 100% relief. So it's crazy, right? Yeah, fibro is a, fibro is a central what pain condition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, see, we do see that. So, so they'll come to us, and, and um, you know, they may have... A, they may have um, you know, arthritic problems. We actually see a lot of that. So we'll see, you know, a lot of facet problems. Misdiagnosed um, um, because, you know, maybe they went to their surgeon, or their primary care, or whoever, and they didn't diagnose. Uh, but you know who, you know, uh, not to, not to be, um, uh, you know, nothing against any particular person, but we have a few rheumatologists in our area who, who don't seem to think that joint pain in the spine is a problem, which is really odd. Very odd, very odd. You'll know, put them on methotrexate before they... Refer them to me. I have just I can't figure that one out. But what happens if you have untreated pain for a long period of time? You're going to get the central changes because your brain's going to say, "Buddy, stop, stop, stop," and you don't stop. So it makes it more sensitized to try to tell you to stop. And you know, you see that, that excitatory effect without the inhibitory effect. Um, so what we'll do, and depending on the patient, we may actually address their, you know, peripheral problems first, or maybe we'll address their central problems. And that's a judgment call. So sometimes you'll see the patient, you'll be like, okay, listen, you know, your, your, your hyperalgesia is way out of, this, out of proportion, and we have to get that under control first. 
Because we have situations where if you don't get that under control, that's where you get the failed procedure. You did a procedure, and they're like, oh, I'm hurting even more. Well, why are you hurting more? Well, I mean, assuming you didn't screw up the injection, it's because you have now traumatized an area that the brain has already thought has been traumatized. It's like the brain thinks you have an open wound, and you've now just spit in that open wound. You know, so sometimes you may need to do the infusion before you do the procedure. Sometimes you'll say, you know what, I think you have hyperalgesia, but until we get this thing under control, you're, you, you know, you're... Um, I could do infusion all day long, but we've got to get this guy under control. So that's a judgment call. But yeah, we, 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 we've had both, and we've had some, you know, if you, if you time it right and do everything right, we've had some really good successes with that as well. And, and significant reduction off medications. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This lady, this CRPS lady, this lady right here, off all opiate medications, and they still thought that, it, that, that you know, it's not helping her... Placebo, yeah. Oh, you got all, all opiates. Oh, no big deal. It's like, really? Um, there is, that, well, that's, that's the whole point is um, because it's customized, there is no specific dose. Um, we, we always start low, and then we'll go up based on how the patient responds. So, you know, truly treated like an anesthetic in the OR. You know, like, so example, if I, if I said, oh, you have a case in the OR in three weeks, what dose are you going to use? Yeah, you're going to base it on how, you know, if I said, by the end of the procedure, okay, you got a four-hour surgery here, buddy. Uh, tell me right now how many milligrams of every single thing you're going to use. It doesn't work that way, right? And, and that's exactly the same thing with the infusion. I can't tell you right now how many milligrams of ketamine that person will need to be in that sweet spot. I can't tell you right now how many milligrams of Versa I'm going to use. I can't tell you right now even how many milligrams of Zofran I'm going to use. I can't. No, they're not out. They're not out. They're not out. They're awake. That's, uh, that, to me, that's another big myth that we've seen. Putting them out means you've given them this much. This is your sweet spot. If you're in that sweet spot, you're not out. You're arousable. You can talk to me. You can do everything. If I, if, uh, this is not a, this is not, I'm not trying to give you a ketamine coma. I, I actually don't believe in the ketamine comas. Why? Because I got a thousand case reports to tell you why. It, it, it's, it's not any more beneficial. In fact, if anything, you're just exposing them to more drug. This is where some of these, you know, th there are some things in the, in the uh, publications. And they say, oh, we had this liver problem. Oh, we had this, we had that. It's because you use too much. So Not because a drug is bad. It's because you use too much. Maybe today, yep. Yep, and, and like I said, there's a lot of those uh, different protocols. You know, we've had efficacy with 45 minutes, some with three hours, some with six, some with five days. Um, I would say that uh, the majority of patients are, are in that one-half to one sort of milligram per kilogram you know, range. I would say the majority definitely fall in that range. And if you look at the studies, the studies actually you know, sort of describe using those dose ranges. Uh, we have, but we do have patients that are lower than that. Our highest patient... Interestingly enough, our, our highest patient, who was, by the way, completely wide awake, okay, getting, you know, 250, 300 milligrams an hour, completely wide awake. And this was a young girl, of all things. You'd think that would be some big guy. Uh, it's not. So, so the one thing that we found is that, is that uh, um, because, you know, how much drug do you need to bind to those receptors? The receptors are not weight dependent. You have what you have. And, and, and at least from what we've seen in our, our, our data is, um, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, if you, if you want to make general generalizations, yeah, you can make that weight generalization. But the outliers, which is crazy, the outliers have all been 
On the low side, bigger men, and on the high side, younger women. Totally counterintuitive. Totally counterintuitive, right? Um, so, so that's why, you know, just with that, you sort of say, listen, you know, you can have some ranges, which is nice, but just remember that you want to kind of get to, you know, every patient's different. So some patients, you may find, uh, some patients may have the higher sweet spot, and you may have to get there. Um, no, no. So uh, uh, what we've also seen is that uh, some patients will have relief right away. Some patients will have relief um, uh, or, or continue to see relief down the road. It's kind of like I've described like smoke and fire. So I might have put out that fire, but they still got that smoke. And, and we've seen patients who like two, three days later, the drug's out of your system, right? You all know half-life's quick. You know, one day later, it's pretty much out of your system. But three days later, four days later, then they start saying, hey, everything's calming down. Everything's like, you know, getting better. So... You know, so, so dosing it to, to whether they have pain right then um, isn't always, I think, the best. It isn't, it's not going to be a foolproof way. Remember, all, a lot of these guys have a lot of peripheral symptoms, too. So, so, you know, I may get them from 10 to 5, and that's the best I'll get them because they've got 5 out of 10 pain in their hip or their back. Um, um, so, so what we try to go to is that sweet spot. And, and I don't know how else to better describe that as opposed to sort of that, that anesthesiologist and you coming out and sort of saying, you know, making that clinical judgment of whether you think that that patient is stable on that dose. And again, trying to hit the lowest dose possible, right? I, I don't want to go to high doses um, because we don't want to, we just don't. I mean, it's, you know, with anything, right? You want to say in the lowest effective dose possible. Um, sorry, you had a question? They, they can fall asleep. We found, um, um, so sometimes, sometimes we may have to do a couple infusions before we find what that spot is for that patient. So, you know, like when we'll need, meet a new patient, we'll start, uh, we usually start um, at, um, yeah, you know, pretty much the same. You know, we'll start at maybe uh, um, 0 0.3, 0.4, you know, milligrams per kilogram. You know, really start on the more conservative side. And then throughout the infusion, we'll, we'll, we reassess the patient every five minutes or so, every five to ten minutes, so a lot more frequently than some other people have described. I know just hear, overhearing that someone told me uh, at, at um, uh, gosh, what was it, uh, they were reassessing their patients every four hours or something like that. I mean, this is stupid, you know. It's like, would you do that in the OR? I mean, come on. I mean, that's, just, that's, that's irresponsible, you know, completely. Uh, but we were reassessing every five minutes, you know, just like you would in the OR, Right? Five minutes, ten minutes. I mean, that's what you do. You got the monitors. I mean, you're constantly assessing, but you're totally reassessing every five minutes, ten minutes with your monitors and everything. Um, so anyway, we reassess. We see how it's going. You know, the, uh, if those patients are coming back to you, you know, half an hour later or whatever, hour later, and they're like, dude, I, you know, not feeling anything, chances are, you know, you will need to increase the dose, Right? Um, now, there may be a situation where the patient is totally sleeping and they feel, and, you, and you're like, okay, it looks like we're properly taking care of this patient. And then on the follow-up, they say, hey, you know, I got, I got relief. It was pretty good. Maybe it was three days or something. It just sort of tells you, okay, um, one of two things. Either one, maybe I haven't hit that, I, I got partial antagonism, so that's why I got a partial effect. Uh, maybe I need to increase it. It may tell you that the peripheral symptoms may be overriding, the organic stuff may be an overriding you know, condition, so you have to reassess there. Um, so, so the follow-up is really where, where we really make that decision. 
you know, of, of okay, what did we do? Did, you know, did we, do we need to add this, take this? Do we need to do more? Do we need to sort of switch gears? Are we, are we, sometimes we're barking up the wrong tree, you know? Sometimes, uh, I mean, we've had infusions that have failed, you know? You know this, is not, this is not to say everything is 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fire and smoke, right? Um, you know, so so immediately they've got that high plasma level, but but ultimately those those neuronal changes, you know, are taking effect, and then you may see the result a couple of days later. I'll, I'll tell you afterwards because I'm not supposed to. Someone told me not to say brands. I'll tell you after. I'll be happy to tell you afterwards. Um, hold hold on one second. I just get her hand up. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so will you? You know, so it can be a variety of either. Uh, obviously, anti-emetics. Um, uh, it could, you know, we could use anti-cholinergic uh, anti products like, like, um, like, uh, um, oh my God, Robinol. Uh, uh, we may be using. Um, uh, we we may have used opiate medications depending on on if they have a lot of peripheral pain. We may use um, IV NSAIDs. Uh, we may use um, uh, sometimes, you know, um, depending on the patient, uh, IV mag. Uh, sometimes, depending on the patient, um, other NMDA antagonists or uh, yeah, antagonists. Uh, what else am I missing? Um, did I say antiemetics? Um, I don't know. Some, you know, those those kind of things that that uh, sort of globally will make that experience more positive. Um, we'll also use oh alpha two. Um, uh, Alpha, alpha 2 agonists as well. Like Presidex? Yeah. But uh, again, that's assuming you want to spend 100 extra dollars per patient and not get reimbursed. <laughs> yeah, great, great point. It's another reason why I really believe in the steady state. And not just for ketamine, really. I mean, we could drag this on to extended release opiate medications. You know, um, you know, you know, technologies as well, and molecules as well with the opiate world. Um, uh, likeability is something we're not looking for. Um, we're looking for um, you know the, the scientific effect. We're looking for feasibility and not likeability. Um, you know, if I do an infusion and someone says they have relief for two months. I don't think it was a likability thing, right? Because that likability will last for a couple hours, right? Because of the half-life. Um, now, if the patient comes to me and starts saying, hey, give me this stuff in a tablet, or give, let me snort this stuff in the thing, okay, then I'm like, okay, you know, that's, that's raising red flags. Sometimes, sometimes it's not. Because sometimes a patient hears that they're supposed to have oral and nasal because other people get it. And so they're asking me for it because they've heard someone else get it. And as soon as I educate them about like like this, usually they're like, "Well, your thing makes much more sense." You know, we're just trying to get better, right? Um, but I I don't think likability is the reason we're seeing. If you if you ask any patient, sounds like you you know you 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 you've, you've thought about this before. So um, you've taken care of patients with CRPS, right? Go go up to a patient with CRPS, and um, you know you know I don't know, give them a chocolate chip cookie. That's what likable, and see if you can shake their hand then, right? Go to them and, and, and even give them, give, them, give them OxyContin, you know, the mother of all likability products, right? And see if you can just shake their hand like a construction worker. No way. No way, right? And we all know that a pain patient will not fake relief. 
a patient with CRPS will not fake relief. You can't. I mean, it's like physically not possible, but, but you also won't. Um, you know, so someone who's desiring something will do the opposite. They'll say, oh, I need more, more, more. Not, wow, this is awesome. So, so I, I haven't seen it. And this is also one of the reasons that you aim for the study.